Again, for those of you who came in a little bit later, let me join those who hopefully have welcomed you to our church. My name is Robert Browning. I'm one of the pastors here at IPC. Sean will be back next week, and he'll, we'll continue our study through uh, the book of John at that point. But as I mentioned in my prayer, um, Sean, his wife Sarah, and Ben, and the rest of their family were gathering out of town to celebrate their oldest son Sam's engagement. So I pray that you'll continue to pray with me today uh, and praying that it was a time of refreshment uh, for Sean and for their family. We are really glad that each and every one of you is here. Whether you're a member of Independent Presbyterian Church, whether you're a regular attender or a first-time visitor, maybe you're looking for a new church home or, or you were just passing through out of town and you decided to join us today, we are so glad that you are here. Uh, we, want you to believe, we want you to know that we believe it's not by accident or coincidence that we're here. We believe that our sovereign God has called each and every one of us uh, to this place because he has something he would like to say to us today to remind us how much he loves us, to show us the extent of that love, namely sending his son, Jesus Christ, because of his love for us. And so whatever your background, wherever you find yourself in relationship to God, whether you are convinced that the things of the scriptures are true or whether you are doubting that they could be, whether you believe you are moving towards God or find yourself struggling and feeling as if you are moving away from him, we want you to know, I want you to know, you're welcome here this morning. We're glad you're here. So please indulge me for just a moment, and I want to address those of you who, who really didn't want to be here or maybe were reluctant to be here this morning. I ask you to trust me, and I know that's a big ask, uh, but I want to ask you a few questions. And I want you to be honest. I want to challenge you to be honest with the answers to these questions. How have you been treated this morning? When you walked through the doors, when you were looking for a place to sit, or, or you were trying to find the restrooms, or, or trying to find a Sunday school class, or when you stood around the water fountain, or were looking for the coffee bar, did you know we had a coffee bar? Did someone bother to tell you that? How were you treated this morning when you came through these doors? Were you welcomed? Has the person sitting closest to you, either on the side or the front or behind, did, did they introduce themselves to you? Did they take the time to ask you your name? Between the two of us, just the two of us, do you think they remember your name? Did they seem warm to you? Did they seem genuine when they said it was nice to meet you or, or nice to see you? Was there authenticity in their voice? Or do you feel like it was just kind of a southern nicety, a social expectation that made them speak? How were you treated this morning? Can I ask you another question? My bet is that you're not here totally by chance. I mean, my bet is that you knew somewhat what to expect when you came in. I'm just guessing, but it's, it, I think it's a good guess, that you weren't just driving down the street, saw this big building with a big steeple on the top, saw a bunch of cars and said, huh, wonder what's going on in there. I got a little bit of time before the Grizzlies tip off. I'll just tuck in there and see what's going on. Pretty astute on my part, isn't it? That's seminary education. Now, my bet is you knew when you came through these doors that you would hear us talk about God, 
that you would hear us mention Jesus, whom we believe uh, to be his son and to believe God himself. That, that we believe that Jesus was not just some great teacher or a guy who had some clever ideas for making life better. No, that, that we might say that we believe that Jesus is the Savior of his people, that he was sent to die on a cross to save his people from their sins. And my bet is that may bother some of you. Because one of the reasons you may have been nervous about coming this morning is because you're not sure what to think about Jesus. Or to be even more clear, maybe you're not sure what Jesus thinks about you. And that's really what I want to ask you. What do you think Jesus thinks about you? What type of person do you think he is? You've been told a lot of things about Jesus, by a lot of people who say they know him. But my guess is you're familiar with a kind of Jesus, but really not Jesus. If you read what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I bet you'll find that the Jesus you thought you knew is not the Jesus that's presented in those texts. I'm going to read an account from Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke. And at the end, I want you to tell me what Jesus thinks of you. But before we go any further, can I ask you to trust me one more time? And will you join me in praying and asking God to reveal to us his truth through this, his word? Will you do that? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we ask that you would meet us here as we gather with all our quirks, our questions, our confusion, and our convictions. Meet us in our affluence and comfort. Meet us in our poverty and fear of paying the next bill. Meet us in our joy and happiness and hope. Meet us in our sadness, our depression, our despair. Meet us in our jealousy and our insecurity. Meet us in our being fake, either by our overinflating who we are or in our underestimating and undervaluing the life that you've given us. Either way, we're all good actors and actresses. So pull us off the stage of our one-act plays and set us in the crowd observing your epic story. Give us an understanding of our roles in the great story of your creation and redemption. Help us to be more mindful of and full of you. Could that actually happen? Could our lives actually change? Many of us are asking that question this morning. So help us to see that it can be as we trace and follow the work of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen going to be reading from Luke chapter 7. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, there are some in the pew racks in front of you. I believe you'll find our text on page 864. This is God's word for us this morning. It's perfect. It's poignant. It's personal. So let's give our attention to the reading of it. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to ask you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, 
which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this even who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want you to think about a time where you had people into your home, when you had people over, when there was the knock at the door or the doorbell rang. Then you do something like say, hello, John, Susie, great to see you. Didn't you say something like, hey, come on in, it's starting to rain, or, or let's get you in out of the cold, or maybe this time of the year, hey, it's kind of warm outside, it's kind of muggy, come on in, let's get you cooled off. Hey, can I take your purse? Can I take your jacket? I'm just going to set them here on the bed in the guest room, or, or maybe in the coat closet, or in a room off to the side. You probably said then, sit down, make yourself comfortable. Can I get you a drink? We've got some appetizers. Can I, can I get you something to eat? Or at the very least, didn't you get up from the couch? Didn't you either turn the TV off or or turn it down? Didn't you do some, if not all, of these things when you had a guest into your home? You took the time to show, at the very least, some sort of minimal standard of politeness, right? What do you think would have happened if perhaps you did none of those? What do you think your spouse or, or maybe your roommate or what about your guest? What, what do you think they would have said? What do you think they would have thought if, if you would have done none of that? As this story unfolds, as Jesus enters the house of this very religious man named Simon, all of the traditional courtesies of the day were omitted. In the ancient Near East, there are customary greetings, societal expectations over hosting someone in your home. And because it's not our time and not our place, we often miss what would have been blatantly obvious to those in the room or those reading Luke's gospel for the first time. The custom of the day required some sort of kiss greeting, usually on the face, much like we would extend a hand for a handshake. After the guests were seated around the dining couch, which, which would have been a U-shaped couch everyone, where everyone could sit and recline and see one another, water and olive oil would be brought for the washing of hands and feet. Olive oil was the soap or the hand sanitizer of the day. And after the guests were properly prepared, then and only then would the blessing be said. And only after the blessing would guests then recline at the table, and then the meal would begin. What's interesting here is not what happened, but instead, what didn't happen. None of these customs were followed. The host did not one. We know this by the way the story begins. 
and how quickly Luke records specifically that Jesus reclined at the table. And we know this because of the end of the story, where Jesus explicitly points out that every one of these customs was ignored. So think with me. How was Jesus treated as he entered into the home, at least by the host? It's pretty obvious that Jesus was invited to the home, but not welcomed in the home. And you and I both know there's a big difference. Think back to middle school, as painful as that may be. There's a big difference, isn't there, than about sitting down at the lunch table and being welcomed at the lunch table. Think about parties. There's a big difference between being invited to a party and really welcomed at a party. There's a big difference between, between being at the club and being a member of the club. There's a big difference between being allowed in a place and welcomed at the place. And here in Luke 7, there's a big difference between Jesus being invited to the home of Simon, the religious elite, and being welcomed by Simon and by the others. Jesus was being publicly humiliated, intentionally belittled. I'll go so far as saying Jesus was being shunned by the host. And it's here where the actions of the woman introduced in verse 37 come into play. Before we unpack this a little further, a couple of things. First, the fact that the woman was there was not uncommon. According to scholars who are familiar with the customs of the day in the ancient Near East, it was tradition at a dinner such as this that the lower people the outcasts in society were, were not shut out. This one whom Luke describes in verse 37 as a woman of the city, this uh, designation is a rated G version about her occupation, not a throwaway description about the location of her residence being uh, within the city limits. When Luke says she was a woman of the city, he's not saying she was anti-suburban. He's commenting on her occupation. We know that specifically because of what follows. She was a sinner. These societal outcasts could come and sit quietly on the floor against the outer wall. And then at the end of the meal, they too might be fed with what was left over. Their presence was meant as a compliment to the host by the servants in the house because it showcased to the other guests that the host cared for even the lowest people. It was their equivalent to posting about every kind deed. It was about public image. But just as we said regarding Jesus, there's a big difference between being allowed to be present and being welcomed. Make no mistake, the religious elite in the room were not welcoming towards the people on the outer ring either. The text leads us to believe that the woman knew that Jesus was coming to dinner. In other words, word had gotten out. In the Greek, and by what is said in other parts of the text, it's clear that she didn't just happen to stumble upon this opportunity. She knew ahead of time of the arrangement. The Greek reads, when the woman learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. 
It's not that Jesus in that present moment was eating. It's talking about the planning. It's talking about the arrangements. We might say um, it was that, that he would be eating at the Pharisee's house. I think this is supported from what Jesus says in verse 45. Look there with me. It says, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased. In other words, the woman was already there when Jesus came into the home of Simon. She was there before he arrived. And some of her actions were premeditated and some of them were not. There were some that she just had to improvise. So what was planned? Well, one thing obviously planned, we know that she brought with her this alabaster jar of perfume. And that was done most likely because she was planning to anoint Jesus' hands and head as a sign of respect, as as a token of gratefulness. But what happened to Jesus, or better yet, what didn't happen to Jesus made her change her plans. She was forced to improvise. Once the host didn't provide oil and water for washing, once Jesus reclined at the table, because of the positioning of the room and where everyone would have been, Jesus' head and hands were no longer available to the woman. And remember, Simon had not provided the customary accoutrements for washing. His hands, his feet were not clean. And you wouldn't pour perfume on them if they weren't clean. You, you wouldn't want that oil on top of dirty hands. And so she improvises because of her reaction to Jesus. It's not believed that the woman came to Jesus in order to have her sins forgiven. Already in Luke 5, verse 30, it's pointed out that Jesus was known to associate with and to to welcome sinners. And even in the short parable about the two debtors, Jesus concludes with the explanation, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. How do we know? Jesus says, because there's evidence she loved much. Notice the order. Order is important here. Not just for the text, but for you and I as well. Her sins were not forgiven because of what she did for Jesus. What she did for Jesus was done because her sins were forgiven. Take note of that. As it relates to the parable and the question Jesus asked Simon in relation to it, it only makes sense since the woman, having heard Jesus' teaching, or at the very least about Jesus' teaching, knew that Jesus welcomed people like her and that he had already forgiven her. Therefore, the love she showed Jesus came out of that realization. And Jesus then reassures her that her assessment is true. Verse 48 As everyone else doubted, he looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. And this is where the action of Jesus or the reactions of Jesus come into view. You see, from Simon's point of view, from the point of view of the Pharisees, the religious elite, before Jesus as a rabbi or teacher would allow someone like this, this sinful woman into his presence, he needed to do or he he needed to see four things things. The the woman of the city, the the sinner, must, must accomplish four things before she would be welcomed. First, show contrition in her heart for the wrong that she had done. Second, confess with her lips the sins that she had committed. Third, offer compensation for a sign of repentance. And four, show determination not to commit this sin again. 
And all of these things, all four of these things would be done before they would have been received and welcomed by a rabbi and accepted in his presence. Yet Jesus demands none of this from her. Again, the word on the street is he welcomes sinners. Her sins already forgiven by him. She did nothing. That's perhaps one of the reasons for her weeping, but I think there's more. I believe she's weeping because she witnessed firsthand how rude Jesus was being treated. That he was being publicly humiliated. That the Pharisees were making fun of him. That they were looking down on him. That's the reason the customary greetings were ignored. And she weeps. And maybe you've shed tears for similar reasons. You've perhaps felt the scorn and judgment of those who come to places like this. You've seen how people like me often treat others. This woman whom perhaps you can identify with can identify with the humiliation of Jesus by the religious elites because she too has felt the scorn and the condescension and the mockery of people claiming to be morally superior. She identifies with Christ and perhaps you can identify with her. I believe it's here, reflecting on these things, where she improvises and knows exactly what to do. They don't offer water to wash his feet. Well, she couldn't because she didn't have water. Until she notices her tears. Think what that must have meant. If she's going to wash the feet of Jesus with her tears, it means it wasn't just kind of One tear that escaped the side of her eyelid. She's weeping. She's ugly crying. She's got plenty to wash his feet. They didn't offer a towel to dry his feet, as would be the custom. And because of where she was sitting behind Jesus, she chose to use her hair to dry them. Don't rush past this. It's not by coincidence that she uses her hair. Though we may, no one in the room would have missed the symbolism. In the ancient Near East, a woman's hair, and I want to be careful how I say this because of little ears in the room, but a woman's hair was very special. Even today in the Middle East, the woman keeps her head covered. Do you know why? It's because in the ancient Near East, a bride on her wedding night lets down her hair and allows it to be seen for her husband for the first time. As the woman is sitting there washing Jesus' feet, she could have used the folds of her dress or the folds of her outer garment, but she didn't. She let down her hair to dry them. It was intentional. She's making some form of an ultimate pledge of loyalty to Jesus. So the big question in the moment by the self-perceived moral majority in the room was how is Jesus going to react to this? What does the text say? Did Jesus dismiss her? No. He was kind to her. He welcomed her. To the astonishment of the judgmental onlookers. And did Jesus demand anything from her? before he was kind to her. No. He was kind to her even in what was an awkward moment 
for everyone. And in stark contrast to the others in the room, those with high and self-righteous standards, did he humiliate her as one who was a sinner? In front of the ones who prided themselves in being the keepers of the law? No. He was kind to her and assured her that her sins were forgiven. There are two types of sinners in the world. Those who believe they keep the law and those who know they don't. Those who believe they keep the law and those who know they don't. There are two types of people in the world and there are two types of people in this room. Jesus corrected the thinking of the self-delusional keepers of the law. Those mistakenly thinking that they were acceptable to God based on the merit, based on their style of living, based on their good deeds, and is kind to the one who is very much aware of the fact that she is a breaker of it because she's honest of her need of a Savior. So let me ask you what I asked at the beginning. What do you think Jesus thinks of you? Can I suggest what we all ought to get from this passage? Jesus is kind to those who know they need him. Regardless of what they've done. And he is kind because he has forgiven them of their sins. It's why he came. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. You do nothing to earn that forgiveness. He already did it. Your love for Jesus, your works for Jesus are not to earn forgiveness. They are there because you are already forgiven. And when you come to grips with the fact that it is truly by grace that you have been saved, not by works, so that you have no basis, you have nothing to boast in, it puts every one of us on an equal footing because we all need Jesus. Now, to those of you who are here week after week, can I ask us a question? How have we treated people? Are we kind like Jesus? We're told that kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's a way in which we know, or better yet, it's a way in which other people know if we're followers of Christ. Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, gives us kindness. So let me ask you and answer honestly. Of all the things that IPC is known for, is kindness even on the list? And if not, why not? As a church, we believe that our justification precedes sanctification. That we are first saved by the grace of God, and then after that, and only after that, do our actions begin to change? Forgiveness from God precedes holy living. But do our actions towards people flow from our theological beliefs? If you think about it, if you really think about it, don't we in practice want sanctification first? We want people to clean up their acts before we let them in, before we let them close to us, before we have them in our homes, before we invite them to our Bible studies, we don't want to be embarrassed, do we? 
before we take them to our clubs, to our social parties, before we even ask them to sit down with us at the Wednesday night table, or before we would even think about bringing them to a church picnic at 5 o'clock this afternoon, Do we demand of people something that Jesus does not? Do we make them jump through a series of hoops before we consider them worthy of kindness? Jesus didn't. And if we're doing that, then we're just giving people a kind of Jesus. Not the kindness of Jesus. To be honest, a lot of times, That's what the church is known for. Offering people a kind of Jesus. Instead, can we make it our goal? Can we make it our mission? To each and every day, to each and every hour, show people the kindness of Jesus. We're just beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. So let's bring them to the feast. Let's be kind about it. And let's be about it. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that if we truly have tasted of and experienced your grace, it will actually begin to proceed from us. And so, Father, I shudder to think how oftentimes I have defamed you by leading with anything and everything but kindness. Forgive me. Forgive us as your people. Continue to change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. May people know that we are Christians because of our love. The same way that Jesus loved us even when we were enemies, willing to give of his life to us in order to draw us to himself. Father, may we as your people do nothing less, for no servant is greater than his master. Oh, Father, may IPC become known as that loving church that welcomes people to come and to eat with Jesus. Would you do that? Yes, for our own benefit, for the benefit of our community, but ultimately, will you do it for your glory? For you alone are worthy of it. In Christ's name, amen. As we come now to prepare ourselves